perfectly on time to get started. Please make sure oh, you know that we are recording for iTunes. So if you enjoy this or want to share this lecture with your friends, go to iTunes and type in OCCSP Podcast. Second is raise your hand if you were in Israel, that you survived Israel. And you're back to hear our friend Gil. Different topic though, right Gil? We know Different that. Different topic. Okay. Uh, and uh, please take out your cell phones, put it on vibrate, turn off mode. Okay. Today's topic, my great and short great-grandfather and the revival of the Hebrew language, Gil Chovav. Gil is on tour promoting his new book, which I have a copy of back there. We're not selling it here because Gil didn't want it, me to get them anywhere. But you could buy it and you'll I'm tell people. Way, He's very, yeah, you're a very shy man. You can get it on Amazon. Great stories in there. Um, Gil is, and I'm not, this is, I'm reading it. I'm not making this up. Israel's leading culinary journalist and TV personality. It's true. Who's here Israeli? Am I lying? Is he famous? And no one here knows. That's what I love. It's great. Gil comes from one of the most respected lineages in the Jewish world. The great grandson of Eliezer ben Yehuda, the reviver of the Hebrew language. Grandson of Itamar ben Avi, who launched, who launched modern Hebrew journalism. And the son of Moshe and Dora and Drora Chovav, founding members of Israel's modern day public radio. During his illustrious career of journalism, publishing, TV, and as an author, Gil has played a major role in the remaking of Israeli cuisine and the transformation of Israel from a country of basic traditional foods into a gourmet nation. The food was really awesome on the last trip. Really? Really? It is because of you. It says it right here. Gil has produced some of Israel's most popular TV cooking shows and written a number of best-selling cookbooks and novels. Gil's newest book, Candies from Heaven, that I mentioned, is a collection of short stories linked to his family's colorful history, sharing with humor and passion the Jerusalem of his childhood. Please join me in welcoming Israeli celebrity Gil Chovav. Shalom, everybody. Um, hey, <laughs> it's good to see familiar faces. And um, I'm here to talk to you about not food, but about uh, Hebrew and my great grandfather, Eliezer ben Yehuda. And I want to start immediately with the bad news. So uh, the bad news that usually the name of this lecture is uh, in Hebrew, it's Eliezer ben Yehuda ben Alei Bait. Uh, in English, it's Eliezer ben Yehuda in slippers. Because it's all about the uh, little, not about the Wikipedia entry about Eliezer ben Yehuda, who was really a, a great man, but about the, the, the stories, the little stories that stayed in the family and were not told. But the problem is that we, could not, we cannot talk about Eliezer ben Yehuda Ben Alei Bait in slippers because he never said the word Naalei Bait. For those of you who know Hebrew, do you know how you say Naalei Bait in Hebrew, in the Ben Yehuda Hebrew? It's Tuflaim. It comes from Pantoflach. So this is his uh, invention for the word. If you hear anyone saying Tuflaim in Hebrew, you can know that uh, he or she are one of two things. It's either a member of my family, because only we say to fly, and or a spy, because I served in the IDF for four years in a top secret unit in the intelligence service, and my friends caught this word from me. So if anyone says to fly, and is not a member of my family, he or she are obviously spies, okay? Now, let's start with a confession. 
In my family, we tend to rank cities around, you know, all over, according to the size of the Ben Yehuda Street that we got. So Tel Aviv is wonderful, you know, a very big avenue parallel to the sea. Jerusalem is lovely. It's a part of the triangle that forms the CBT of Jerusalem. Um, Be'er Sheva, Rehovot, Kfar Saba, very good streets. Haifa, an alley. But they were always socialists, so we never trusted them anyway. Irvine has a long way to go. Okay, so until the next, I, I came here, I checked, no. So until next time I come, please make sure that there is a Benyuda street. Um, so let's start our story near the end. So picture me 30 years ago, a 25 year old apprentice in a newspaper. Uh, in a local newspaper in Jerusalem. Um, you know, I did all the very small jobs in the newspaper, but I really liked sitting at the desk of the newspaper and seeing how newspapers are being made. And one evening I was there and we got word that it happened yet again. What does it mean, it happened yet again? So uh, people who live in Jerusalem know this ritual that we have in Jerusalem that at least once a year, if not twice, uh, guys from the ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem, from Neturei Karta, take bats and axes and go to the Mount of Olives, to the cemetery where the burial plot of my family is, fenced, and uh, break all the graves and the tombstones and spray them with nasty graffitis and smear them with tar and then the municipality fixes it, and then it happens yet again, etc., etc., etc. This has been going on for decades now in Jerusalem. And we got word that it happened yet again, and I did not know what I should do. Whether I should call my aunt Rina, who was still alive, and tell her that the graves of her father and her grandfather and her mother and her uncles and aunts were yet again desecrated by the Haredi people from Neturei Karta, you know, it's not a very nice piece of news to break to your aunt. Um, I won't tell you what I did. If you behave, I'll tell you in the end. But in the meantime, let's talk a bit about what was it and what is it still in this man, Eliezer ben Yehuda. Very short, very annoying, not nice, spitting blood, he had tuberculosis, quick to any fight, very sensitive about respect, uh, missing one finger. You know that uh, at the time in the 19th century, uh, Jews used to either chop off one finger or uh, put some, oiling, uh, some boiling oil in their ear in order to become cripples, not to serve in the Russian army. So missing one finger, red-headed, what was it in him and what is it still that on one hand makes the guys from the Neturei Karta community, even 100 years after he died, go up to his grave every year to desecrate his grave. And on the other hand, makes UNESCO, the culture organization of the United Nations, declare him in a very big ceremony in Paris 10 years ago as one of Western civilization's greatest figures together with Haydn and Newton. It was a very impressive ceremony. 
Why do people remember him? Why do people care about him so much? So, Laser Perelman, this is his name. Laser Perelman was born in 1857 in Lithuania. Uh, today, it's Belarus. At the time, it was Lithuania under Russian rule in a little village called Luzhki to a very usual Jewish family of the time. They were Hasidic, they were very poor, uh, many children. Uh, after he was born, his father passed away and his mom, Tsipora, was left with a lot of kids and with no money. And a few years later, she had to make a choice that to us today looks you know, devastating. At the time, it, it was quite a common choice. It's sort of a Sophie's choice. It's to choose which of her, her children will be sent away from home because she did not in have enough bread to feed all the children. And she chose little Laser because he was the brightest. And she said maybe with, her wit, with his wits, he would be able to survive. And he was sent to a remote relative to be educated with no love at all. This relative was not at all content to have yet another mouth to feed. A very religious guy, uh, Laser went to the Cheder, was very quickly recognized as, as an Ilui, as a genius, but got no love from this remote uncle of his. Years later, when he was already Eliezer ben Yehuda and was known all over the world and was interviewed for an American newspaper, the American journalist asked him like, we journalists usually do in the beginning of the conversation. Well, to begin with, why don't you tell me a bit about your childhood? And Eliezer ben Yehuda snapped, well, I didn't have one. And it's true, he did not have a childhood. But in the Cheder, he became familiar with Hebrew. Now, we're talking about the middle of the 19th century. Hebrew is totally, totally, totally dead. Right? Just like Latin today, uh, it's a language that exists only in books, known by some scholars, but nobody around the world spoke it. And uh, since it was the Haskalah period, so Jewish scholars tried here and there to translate uh, works of uh, literature to the Hebrew that they had, the biblical Hebrew that they had, just to see whether it could work. But of course, nobody spoke it. And he came across one of these books. Do you know what is the first Hebrew book that the reviver of modern Hebrew read in his life? Except from the Bible and the Talmud, of course, but uh, a secular book? Robinson Crusoe. So he read Robinson Crusoe, he fell in love with Hebrew, and uh, he started reading, it was forbidden of course, because these were outer books, a young Jewish guy was not to read non-religious non uh, books. He started reading them in hiding, his uncle caught him and said, you cast shame on my family and on this home, take your tefillin and leave. And think of a 16 or 17 year old boy starting to travel by foot alone in the world in Eastern Europe from, this is before the Holocaust, there were many villages and Jewish towns, uh, from one town to another, relying on the hospitality of kind Jews. He, will, he said, maybe I'll make it one day to Moscow. And he's walking eastwards, 
And whenever he finds places to sleep in, whenever people you know, take mercy and, 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 and uh, invite him home, that's good. If not, he sleeps on a bench in the synagogue. And here starts, you know, Eliezer ben Yehuda was super secular. He never believed in God, not for one day of his life. But here starts a chain of, there is no other word but miracles. Miracle number one. One day, he's already 18 years old. He goes to sleep on a bench in the synagogue. Into the synagogue steps a rich Jewish person called Mr. Yonas. Mr. Yonas sees the guy sleeping on the bench, asks him, who are you? You don't have anywhere to sleep. What's going on? What's the story? He is so impressed with the wits of the young man that he says, you know what? Come to my home to be the tutor of my children. Uh, we're talking about uh, concepts of, again, old Europe, a resident tutor, yes? Not, not a private teacher that comes to teach for two hours physics or math, but a resident tutor. A year later, Eliezer Perelman, Perelman's way of thanking Mr. Jonas, who saved him from hunger, is to come to him and to say, well, Mr. Jonas, for the past year, I've been having an affair with your eldest daughter. Actually, we're doing it. I'm going to marry her. We're going to move to Palestine, and we're going to, to teach everybody to speak Hebrew. Okay, translated to nowadays, it's as if someone would come to you and say, I'm having an affair with your daughter. I'm going to take her to Rwanda in Africa and we'll teach everybody to speak Latin, right? It sounds very logical, but we're talking about miracles, right? Mr. Jonas looks at him and says, a brilliant idea. But before you do, before you go to Palestine, which was a God-forsaken place in Fakakte, Ottoman falling down empire, before you do that, let me send you on my expense to the Sorbonne in Paris. You'll study medicine. Everybody needs a doctor all over the world. You'll be able to support yourself and my daughter even in Palestine. First, become a doctor. Laser Perlman thinks for a minute and says, you know what? I'll take it. Takes the money, thank you very much. Goes to Paris, sends postcards about his advances in studying medicine. Of course, he never sets foot in the Sorbonne. He sits in cafes and talks to politicians and journalists, contracts tuberculosis, and is being sent to recover in Algiers, in the north of Africa. Two more miracles occur in the hospital in Algeria. One, he meets a Sephardi Jew. Now, Jews from, uh, first of all, Jews from Europe never met Sephardi Jews, of course. This guy was from Jerusalem, a Sephardi Jew from, a Jew from Jerusalem, who was sent to recover as well. And, you know, Jews in Jerusalem did speak a bit more Hebrew than the usual, and they spoke it differently, of course. If we talk about the Ashkenazi, Nigun, or the Ashkenazi accent of Hebrew, pronunciation of Hebrew. So let's take a line by, by our uh, national poet, Chaim Nachman Bialik. We have Shalom Rav Shuvech Tzipor Anechmedet, right? So in, in Ashkenazi Hebrew, it would be Shalom Rav Shuvech Tzipor Anechmedet. It sounds a bit like Yiddish. In Sephardi Hebrew, it's Shalom Rav Shuvech Tzipor Anechmedet. It sounds much more biblical. 
and Blazer Perelman hears it and says, this is what Hebrew should sound like. Number two, a super secular guy who does not believe in God, who doesn't have God in his heart, not for one hour of his life, writes in his memoir that one night he laid in bed, there was a lightning in the sky and a big voice thundered upon him, the revival of the Jewish people in its land and in its language. This is years before Herzl, years before Herzl. He knows that this is really his vocation. He goes back to Paris. Being a bit kind, he sends a telegram back to Russia, to his fiance, to Dvora, the daughter of Mr. Yonas, telling her, I'm really going to go to Palestine and teach everybody to speak Hebrew. It's not a place for a well-educated, sophisticated young lady from a well-to-do home in Russia, in Europe. You're exempt from the marriage. You don't have to marry me. You can marry whoever you wish. But Dvora was a tough cookie, and she won't let anyone fire her from her marriage by telegram. She conducts a wedding without him. <laughs> All night long, she dances in a bride, bride's dress, a white bride's dress, alone, with no groom, with only her relatives and friends. And at midnight, she sits down for one last game of chess with her father, changes her outfit to a black man's suit, and starts stealing the border towards the west. You know, the Jews were not allowed to travel freely in Europe in those days. So at night, she would take trains to the west, gets to Paris, grabs Laser Perelman by his collar, and tells him, you promise to marry me, and marry me you will. And they get on a ship, they sail to Palestine. On the way, in Alexandria, in Egypt, they get married, 1881. They get to Jaffa, which was the main port of Palestine. In Jaffa, Laser Perelman says three things. The first one, my name is no longer Laser Perelman. My name is Eliezer ben Yehuda. Ben Yehuda meaning the son of Judah, not Judah the person, Judah the land. I am the son of this land. And Ben Yehuda is a name that many Zionists took upon themselves later when they wanted to leave Europe behind them and become, you know, citizens of the new country. Secondly, he says, I did not come to Palestine in order to spend time in Jaffa. I want to go to Jerusalem now. Now, nowadays, a trip to Jerusalem from Jaffa is about 45 minutes, depends on traffic. At the time, eight hours in a road infested with robbers and wolves and you name it. In the middle of the night, they take a carriage and they drive to Jerusalem. He says, I won't spend even one night in Jaffa. And thirdly, he makes Dvora, his wife, make a vow. They both make a vow that they would never, ever utter yet one other word of uh, Yiddish or Russian or German or French or the languages that they knew. Only Hebrew in the land of Israel. And if one of them, by mistake, utters a Russian word, the other one has every right to pinch him or her. <laughs> Remember that, it will come back to us. 
they get, they get to Jerusalem. Now, if you get to a city and a country which is not at all Zionist, Jews in Jerusalem were, now, were not Zionists. The, the Sephardi Jews who were well-to-do did not want to rock the boat. They were happy as they were. The Ashkenazi Jews, you know, the, the, the ultra-Orthodox Jews were never Zionists. They, they still are not Zionists. They do not recognize the state of Israel. So they were very hostile to them. If you come to such a city and you want to make everybody speak Hebrew, which they don't know, where would you start? Any ideas? It's difficult, huh? So one day I was giving this lecture in a kindergarten, and one of the kids is voting like, ah, ah, I have an idea. I said, yes. He said, tell them to open a bank. Jews love money. It will work. It will work. They didn't open a bank. Uh, three ways. One, communications. Eliezer Ben Yehuda starts immediately. Two, two rival daily newspapers <laughs> that are handed out for free. He knew that Jews would take, what, would take whatever is given out for free. And people, you know, these were not the respectable newspapers of Jerusalem. You know, if you wanted to read a real newspaper, it would be either in Turkish or in French or in German. But as a game, Jews going out from the synagogue took these little leaflets to try whether they can understand what's written in them with their synagogue Hebrew. Number two, education. Eliezer ben Yehuda knew that his generation is lost, but he said children should be taught in Hebrew. But of course, first of all, the parents didn't want it, because just like you wouldn't want your children to be educated in Swahili in the United States, it just doesn't belong in the land. Second, the teachers didn't want it. And thirdly, there were no books in Hebrew, and no games in Hebrew, and no songs in Hebrew. He wrote them all by himself. He wasn't very talented, I must say, about writing songs, but he wrote the songs so the teachers, those who agreed to try to educate children in Hebrew, would have a few songs. And little by little, in kindergartens, in the Moshavot, in the settlements around Jerusalem and Jaffa, kids started speaking Hebrew. And the third thing that is always important in a revolution is, of course, violence. So two stories about Ben Yehuda violence. One, we all know Rehovot, a nice town in the middle of Israel, in the center of Israel, with a very big university in it, the Weizmann Institute, we're very proud of it. At the time, a little village of Russian Jews, farmers who grow grapes, and uh, there was only one street in the middle of Rehovot, a would-be avenue. They had little trees that they planted. And at dusk, they would be coming from the vineyards and uh, walking to and fro on that one street that they had and having conversation with their wives about you know, what happened today, what we did, what we'll do tomorrow, etc. The kids of Rehovot got permission from their teachers to hide behind the little trees of that avenue and to listen to the language in which their parents are having conversation. And if they heard that they were using Russian instead of Yiddish, instead of Hebrew, they had every permission to jump out from the tree and to prick their father's tuches with a little needle that they got at high school or at school. And this way, 
with violence, we conquered Rehovot. <laughs> Second story about Ben Yehuda violence, which is not as nice. A few years ago, I get a letter from a lady, uh, an email from a lady that I didn't know, and she says, Dear Mr. Chovav, I'm, uh, I'm going to publish a book with uh, the writings and the letters of my late father, and there's one letter about a visit to the Ben Yehuda residence, and I want your permission to publish it. So I said, that's very kind of you, you know, even according to Israeli law, if one side of the correspondence agrees to the publication, the other side has no word in it, it's your letter, do whatever you wish to do. She says, young man, you want to read this letter before I publish it. I said, okay, okay, send it over. The letter goes, uh, this person, uh, wanted to visit Eliezer ben Yehuda in his residence in Jerusalem. Now, when we talk about residence, the apartment in which Eliezer ben Yehuda and his wife, Dvorah, lived in was in the old city of Jerusalem on the second floor of a house, a one-room apartment. When I say a one-room, it's not one bedroom. It's a studio apartment. Second floor, only there was no staircase. So they had to use a ladder in, in order to get to this <laughs> tiny attic, okay? So he goes to visit Eliezer ben Yehuda and Dvorah, his wife, and he says, he writes, that, that when he sat with Eliezer ben Yehuda at the table and when Dvorah came and served tea, he saw that both her arms were black and blue with bruises from pinching. Remember? Now this is not a nice story. There is no way around it. He was beating his wife and we don't like it, and we do not appreciate it. But he was a prophet. And you know, the problem with prophets and revolutionists is that they have many assets, and they have many good qualities and traits. There's one thing that they're missing. They're missing humor. They know the truth. They go towards the light. And this is what they know. I'm sure that it wasn't fun to be the wife of Mao Zedong or the girlfriend of Che Guevara or... These people are difficult, but sometimes, sometimes they do awful things, but sometimes when they do know the right truth, we really gain from it. And it's because of him that I have a state, and this is not a small thing. I should mention that Dvorah admired him and loved him and all of his children. He was a dreadful father. He, they used to call him a back father. Why a back father? Because they only saw his back when he was working. When they wanted to talk to him, they had to fill a form and to give it to their mother and maybe within 10 days he would reply. They all admired him, each and every one of them, when they were talking about him, when they were alive, when I was a kid, and they would talk to me about him, they, would, they won't say Abba, Dad, they always called him Avi Hagadol, my great dad. And they really admired him, and she admired him as well, Dvorah. She caught tuberculosis from him and died, and when she was on her deathbed, she wrote to her sister, her young sister, and told her, if you want to be the queen of Israel, if you want to know what nobility is, if you want to know what love means, 
come and marry my husband. And um, she died, Dvora. The um, uh, ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem, of course, refused to bury her in a Jewish cemetery. And uh, he was left with a few of his children. Many of, his, of their children died. Uh, you know, these were the old times in the Ottoman Empire. You know, when you had a child, it was 50-50 whether the child is going to survive or not. So many of their children died. He was left with two children. Uh, and he writes a letter to Russia, to the Jonas family, saying, Dvorah died. I want to marry her younger sister. Immediately, he gets a telegram from the Jonas family. A brilliant idea. Now, for years, I was wondering, what was it in him, in that, you know, short man spitting blood, beating his wife, shouting, you know, getting in fights with everybody? What was it in him that made the, 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 the second sister want to marry him? Now, this is not something that you can ask the family that really admired him. So it took me many years, but when I turned 35, I was brave enough to ask the daughter, the daughter of Eliezer ben Yuda and his second wife, who was the sister of his first, uh, first wife. My grandfather is the eldest son. He is the son of Eliezer ben Yuda and Dvorah, the first wife. When he married Chemda, he had a few other children. One of them is named Dola, which is a nickname for Dvorah. She was na um, named after the, the late wife. And she, you know, at the time we didn't have that term, but she was mega ADHD, okay? She couldn't stand still. She was always like this, you know? And when she was talking, her voice was, was trembling. She lived to the age of 104. So I knew her really, really well. And she was the, the most intelligent and funniest and smartest woman. So one day I asked her, Dola, you know, maybe it's impolite, but I must know, what was it in, in your great father that, that they found in him? And she said, Gilly, dear, let me tell you something. For years, I was wondering myself, but I did not dare ask anyone. Then one day, I got the nerve to ask my aunt Penina. Penina is the third Jonas sister who moved from Russia to the United States. And you know what Penina answered? She said, Dola, my sweet, I would like to make a confession. For years, I have been praying for the health of your dear mother. But I was telling God, if anything happens to her, maybe he would marry me too. <laughs> so there is no other explanation. He was deadly sexy, which runs in the family, as you can see. <laughs> Otherwise, there is, we don't know. It wasn't a joke, yes? OK. Um, before I go on to speak a bit about Chemda, about the second wife, just another story of Dola to show you how, how crazy uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda was and what a one-trick Jewish pony he was. <laughs> so we said that there was a world war going on between the ben Yehuda family, my family, and the ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem. They would throw stones on Eliezer ben Yehuda. They would break the windows in their house. They 
uh, told the Ottoman rulers of the country that he is a British spy and he sat in jail for one year for that. They killed my grandfather's dog and uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda buried the dog in the yard and on the tombstone he wrote, here lies the first Hebrew dog. <laughs> and they refused to bury his wife and children in a Jewish cemetery, of course. And, 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 and. Okay, so the ben Yehuda family lived in a home which was on the main road that led between the ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods in Jerusalem and the only hospital that Jerusalem had in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, one, uh, one Yom Shishi, one eve of Shabbat dinner, they were sitting having the, the dinner before Shabbat, and uh, suddenly they hear screaming of a young lady from the street in Yiddish, Geval, Jews, I'm dying, Geval, help me, Mamale, I'm dying, Geval, Geval. The, chi the children rush to the balcony, look down, and what do they see? In the garden of the Ben Yehuda house, a young Haredi woman, 20-something years old, is lying on her back and giving birth and shouting, Gewalt, Gewalt, I'm dying, Jews, do something. Turned out that it was Yom Shishi, it was the eve of Shabbat. The lady was in labor. She did not want to take a taxi. They did not have taxis in Jerusalem at the time, but a carriage with horses to the hospital because maybe Shabbat would enter and this would be Chilul Shabbat. So she started walking. And with her luck, the water came down right when she was under the Ben Yehuda residence. And here she is lying on her back, shouting, Gewalt, Gewalt, I'm dying, Mama Le Gewalt. The children get hysterical. They rush back home. They grab their father by the sleeve, take him to the balcony, do something. Eliezer Ben Yehuda goes out to the balcony. She's shouting, Gewalt. He looks at her and he says, shout in Hebrew, and goes back. <laughs> That's it. That's the man. Just, just imagine. Um, I want to talk a bit about Chemda, about the second wife, because, you know, history is um, sometimes unkind, mostly to women, and many uh, achievements of women are attributed to men, and not rightly so. And uh, I must say that it say that if it had not, it had not been for Chemda, the second wife, I don't think that the story of Ben Yehuda and all of the Ben Yehuda legacy would have been the same. It may have not succeeded. She came from Moscow. She was, again, we're talking about before the First World War. Jews were comfortable in Moscow. She was a chemistry student in the university in Moscow from a family of great wealth. She left everything. She came to be with him. Again, before she came, he, as he used to do, sent a telegram saying that she's exempt from the marriage because people told him, you're going to kill her, just like you killed her sister. And he, he wrote her a telegram and said, uh, maybe it was a bad idea. You don't have to come. You don't have to marry me. She sent him a telegram. I'm coming. Wait for a letter. And then the, the letter arrived. And uh, in the letter she wrote, I'm coming to marry you, and if it's for a day, and if it's for a week, and if it's for all of my life, this is my destiny. I'm coming. And she did. And she was in charge of a revolution. She was a European educated lady. She refused to wear a wig. 
She, you know, she fought the ultra-Orthodox community. They didn't know where, where they got it from. You know, she started, she wanted to uh, make the circulation of the newspapers bigger, so she said, we need something catchy. So she started to write a fashion column. Now, a fashion column in Hebrew, they hated Eliezer Ben Yudah because Hebrew is Lushan Kodesh. It shouldn't deal with going to the toilet or going to the bedroom or going to the bank. And she wrote about bras and underwear in Hebrew. They were, they were jumping from balconies. And um, she, um, she, of course, got the money. She begged, borrowed, and, st and stole to get the money for the publication of the dictionary. Now, I don't know whether you ever saw the Ben Yudah dictionary. It's huge. It's the size of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it's, it's a project that states take upon themselves, not one sickly, elderly Jew working, standing up, coughing blood, uh, you know, 18 hours a day. And uh, she went by herself to Europe to get the money and to promise and to do this and to do that. And because of her, little by little, the big dictionary started to be printed. Eliezer ben Yehuda did not live to see the whole dictionary in print. When he died, I think that fi only five of the 21 volumes were in print. His biggest victory was in what we call the language of wars. So the language of wars occurred in Palestine in 1910. Word got out that after 2,000 years, they're going to build the first ever Jewish university in Palestine, in Haifa, the Technion. Um, uh, and it was clear, of course, that the Technion would be teaching in the language of science. Now, what is the language of science? Nowadays, it's, of course, English with a foreign accent. At the time, it was German. So it was clear to Eliezer ben Yehuda that if after 2,000 years, the first Jewish university in Palestine is going to be teaching in German, he lost. Being the annoying person that he was, he made a petition of all the teachers in Palestine, all the Jewish teachers in Palestine, saying, that if the Technion would be teaching in German, they won't set foot in this school. And they sent this petition to the uh, donors in Germany. The donors were not impressed. Another petition. All the students in all the schools in, in Palestine signed it. If it's going to be teaching in German, we're not going to study. It will be an empty building on the Carmel Mountain. The building stops for four years. And in 1914, the Technion is opened and teaches only in Hebrew. Uh, seven years later, the Hebrew U, I'm a graduate of the Hebrew U. We all know that it's a good and big university in Jerusalem, and it's called the Hebrew U. No, 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 no. It vowed to teach only in Hebrew. This is why it's called the Hebrew U. And I'm a graduate of the Hebrew U, not just any other university, the Hebrew U. Um, so this was his biggest victory when he was alive. He passed away in 1922. Again, a person who is not religious, he, by the way, he refused when he got his Ottoman uh, identif I, uh, identity card, he refused to write, uh, in, under religion, he refused to write uh, a Jew. 
he asked for them to write Ivri, a Hebrew, because this was his religion. He died in 1922, not believing in God, but still, when he was working on the entry Neshama, soul, for his uh, dictionary. The dictionary, uh, the family kept publishing volume after volume in the dictionary. It, it was Chemda, uh, his widow, and their son, their second son, not my grandfather, took it upon themselves to, to see that the dictionary would be printed. But still, uh, in 1953, when Chemda passed away, uh, the dictionary wasn't, all, wasn't still in full print. So I want to end this story with a very lovely story about how Chemda died. So this is a story that I've heard from little Eliezer. So who is little Eliezer? Eliezer ben Yehuda had a son named Ehud, not my grandfather. My grandfather is the eldest son, a, a younger son named Ehud. Ehud had a boy and a girl. We, we said how much they admired him, right? So Ehud named his boy Eliezer, and this is little Eliezer, and named his girl Eliezra. This is very logical, right? <laughs> so little Eliezer, uh, at 1953, uh, was an eight-year-old kid. He was at home with his grandma, at his grandma's home, Chemda Chemda, who was a terrifying woman. Everybody was afraid of her in Jerusalem. Uh, she was bedridden already. She was in bed. She called him to her room, and she said, little Eliezer, take this tetale, take this number that I'm giving you on a little piece of paper, call on the phone and say that Chemda ben Yehuda says that David and Moshe must come right away. And he calls and they come. And what do we learn from this story? That in Israel of 1953, if an eight-year-old boy calls the office of the prime minister <laughs> and says, Grandma says that David and Moshe must come right away, David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Sharet, the prime minister and secretary of state, come right away. Now, they were terrified of her. They are ushered to her bed. The kid is being sent out, but this is an old Jerusalem house you can you know, see through the glass of the door. And they stood terrified by her bed like this, shaking. And she looked up and she said, Guys! I am going to die! But before I do, I want you to promise me with your own mouth that the big Ben Yehuda dictionary is going to be printed till the end! They were so afraid that immediately they do like this, yes, yes, yes. No, 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 no don't know that me! You will say it! And if you don't say it, I'm not going to die! <laughs> so they said it and she died. Okay? <laughs> but because of her, and because of him, I have a homeland, and I have a culture, and I have a sense of belonging, and I know who I am, and where I am, and why I'm there. And every morning when my daughter wakes up and looks at me, she says, Gili ani ohevet otcha. In Hebrew, I love you, in Hebrew. And I think it was worth all the effort. So because you, because you behaved, I must say, I'll tell you what happened in the end of the first story. So picture me, 25 years old, not knowing what to do with a piece of news. It happened yet again. In the end, I said, well, the news, it's not mine. She'll read it in the newspaper anyway tomorrow. 
So I called my aunt and I said, Aunt Rina, I'm so sorry, I have unpleasant news. It happened yet again. And my aunt told me, Gilly, did you only get word of it or do you have photos of what happened? And I said, you know, leave it. Well, you want to send your elderly aunt photos of the desecrated graves of her family? So she said, no, 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 no. I'm not asking for, for you to send anything. I want you to look at the photos. I said, yes. She said, the nasty graffiti. In which language? I said in Hebrew, she said, yes, we won. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you very, very much. You've been very, very kind. If you have, if you have any questions about Hebrew, Eliezer ben Yehuda, my family, myself, I'm yours. Yes, please. I always think that the most fun is uh, three ideas of how to make learning Hebrew fun for kids in America. I think that songs are really fun and sometimes they're even smart. I think that there are some nice shitty TV series that may be interesting for children. Uh, and uh, this is how I learned my French, by watching stupid French television, and it really, it really works. So, uh, so it's two out of three. <laughs> yes, please. What, if any Hebrew, did the second wife know to what, what Hebrew did she know? Um, she already knew some, but again, she had to learn it. She had to learn it. They had very romantic Hebrew. They had, you know, we're left in the family with many, many, many words of Ben Yehuda that were not absorbed in the language because some of his inventions worked and some did not. So they spoke a different Hebrew than the modern Hebrew that we speak today. But again, first of all, she was from a very educated family, so she knew the Tanakh and the Mishnah and the Talmud, so she knew the basics of Hebrew. And when we talk about modern Hebrew of the time, she had some, but then she got to Palestine, and again, it was a Hebrew-only household. So within a few months, she was already fluent. Yes, please. Uh, in many, 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 many ways, uh, the Ben Yehuda dictionary, he was a, a self-taught person, but he was a genius. So in his dictionary, every word is compared to seven other Semitic languages. So he was, his, his knowledge was so vast, but he took for himself many liberties that today the Hebrew academia does not appreciate. For instance, as we said, uh, slippers to fly, this is a word com that comes from either German, pantoflach, or from Russian, tufli, and he just took the sound of it and made, gave it a Hebrew flair. This is something that the Hebrew academia today does not uh, appreciate, but he, you know, he was the boss. Uh, a story that I really love about where he got ideas for words from is the story about, so, okay, so we say, okay, we have the Bible, so everything is written in the Bible, we have words in the Bible, and we can use them, right? 
But how do you say electricity? There was no electricity in the Bible. So since he was very well educated, he thought of the word chashmal. And this is how we say electricity in Hebrew up until today. Now what is chashmal? Chashmal is almost a, what we call mila yechidait in Hebrew, a singular world. I mean, a, a, world that, a word that appears only once in the Bible and therefore cannot be compared to anything. Chashmal is mentioned twice in the Bible, twice in prophecies that talk, you know, sometimes the, the language of prophecies is really difficult to, to understand. These prophecies that talk about the wonders of God and Chashmal in the Bible is some magic spark that God has and is wonderful. And Eliezer ben Yehuda said, this is electricity. <laughs> so it's, it's very creative. Yes, please. It's, uh, it, it happened bef yet b before the establishment of Israel. Hebrew, be it became clear that Hebrew, and also for Eliezer ben Yehuda, he did not revive Hebrew because he loved Hebrew. He revived Hebrew because he was a Zionist. And for him, it was a Zionist act. He said, the Jewish people would not be able to establish a state unless they have a common language. Think of the Tower of Babel. The Masons did not have a common language. This is why it collapsed. In Palestine, you had pioneers, Halutzim, from Poland, and from Algeria, and from France, and from Germany, and from the US. They did not have a shared language. They would say, we cannot work in the field together because we don't know how to make conversation. So he saw Hebrew as a tool. And little by little did the big leaders of Zionism come to appreciate that this tool is really needed. And I would say that by 1920, Palestine was already speaking Hebrew. I mean, the Jewish population of Palestine. And then it became really a tool of the revolution. Now, for instance, the town hall of Tel Aviv before the establishment of Israel, refused to answer letters from citizens about any problems with sewage or electricity, unless they're written in Hebrew. The, the, the reply would come, we got a letter from you. It's in a language that we do not recognize. Please write it in Hebrew and send again. So when Israel was established, you know, the, the news were already in Hebrew. Yes. So, we, 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 yeah, we assume that that's the creation of the great Yes, the the ultra the Neturei um, Karta community in Jerusalem up until today, which is a very big community, they do not recognize Israel. They they are pro-Palestinian, not for terror, of course, but they are pro-Palestinian. They say there shouldn't be a Jewish state until the Messiah comes, and he hasn't arrived yet, and therefore they dress. Like in old Europe, they speak only in Yiddish. They do not draft to the army. They do not pay taxes, etc., etc., etc. So, yes, yes, please. So, 
since uh, your great-grandfather -grand great uh, lived till 1922, there was an opportunity perhaps to meet her Herzl. Did they have a relationship? Did Herzl embrace his ideas? Uh, he admired Herzl. He never got to meet him, and it killed him that he didn't get to meet him. Uh, he admired Herzl's ideas. He was a very pragmatic man. In his memoir called Hachalom Veshivro, The Dream and the Solution, um, he writes that what was clear to him was that the national Jewish movement, the Zionism, needed leaders. And he said, I'm even willing for rabbis to be the leaders. Although he did not believe in God, he said, we should unite around leaders. Otherwise, it, will, it won't happen. And of course, he recognized Herzl as one of the greatest leaders, but he never got to meet him. One last question. Is the song Robin still popular? When I was there in the 80s, that's what I learned. It's very popular. Next time I'm here, I promise you I'll be singing it. It's one of my numels. And uh, I do it all the time. It's a great song. We have an issue with the fact that it's Eliezer ben Yehuda, because we say Eliezer ben Yehuda. And you know, Israelis are so obnoxious. So when, when I get in a taxi and I tell the driver, please uh, take me to ben Yehuda street. So the driver says, ben Yehuda. I said, no, 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 ben Yehuda. He says, what is it, your father's street? I say, yes. <laughs> so so uh, one last question. If, uh, if they want to see you on TV, where are you heading to next for your big adventure uh, on the travel station? Um, so next it's Azerbaijan, then Bulgaria, then India, then Serbia, then Italy. Uh, how do they watch you? Is it on you? Can they see it on YouTube or, or will they have to on, get... Uh, it's a site called Keshet TV. It's uh, the, the commercial channel of Israel and it, it's all online. Okay, so thank you, Gil, for coming to Orange County. Thank you all and uh, see you a lot uh, in the next few weeks or so. Have a great Thanksgiving. Okay, so we got to get you Ubered. Yes.